Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. They carried the common secret of cowardice, barely restrained, the instinct to run or freeze or hide. And in many respects, this was the heaviest burden of all, for it could never be put down. It required perfect balance and perfect posture. Tim O'Brien from his remarkable work, The Things They Carried. Welcome back to Dead and Gone in Wyoming, a monthly podcast telling the stories of this remarkable state's most enduring murders and disappearances. I'm Scott Fuller, reminding you that this podcast does contain depictions of disappearance and murder and is not suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. On today's episode, a story most of you have surely heard of before, but one so bizarre and tragic Had I made such a story up, I would be accused of impossibility. But it did happen over the course of 40 years. The most bizarre and murderous Wyoming love story you've ever heard. Four states have counties named for John C. Fremont, including Wyoming, Fremont County, Wyoming. Thirteen cities in as many states also bear his name, Fremont. He can trace all the Fremont cities as dots on a map from New York and New Hampshire, all the way west across Minnesota and Michigan, Nebraska, and finally California. The path of Fremont cities follows in John Fremont's journey west, or one of his several journeys west to be more specific, because Fremont made the journey numerous times as an explorer, but his legacy was cemented through politics. And John Fremont's political career will never be replicated. It can't be. He was both a United States senator from California as well as a governor of a different state, what would eventually become Arizona. He was also the very first Republican Party nominee for president, six years before Lincoln. A Southerner from Georgia, he was on the one hand an ardent abolitionist and vehemently opposed slavery. In fact, John Fremont once issued an emancipation edict that freed the black soldiers under his command. The only problem was he didn't have the authority to issue such a command, and it had to be rolled back by no less than President Lincoln himself. But while he believed passionately that slaves should be freed, Fremont was also ardently anti-Indian and he contributed to the genocide of unknown numbers of Native Americans, especially in California. By the end of his life, this man had evolved into a very complicated persona. But early in his career, before the Civil War changed Fremont and the rest of the country, for that matter, irrevocably, he had been a much more pure, if that's the word, 
explorer. He embarked on a scientific mission in 1842 in which he and a local mountain man named Kit Carson explored the Wind River Mountains. Climbing to one summit on the range, which is now called Fremont Peak, John C. Fremont planted an American flag and proclaimed the entire Rocky Mountain West for the United States of America. Fremont died back east in New York City in 1890 at an impressive 77 years old, having lived a full, if not morally complicated, life of adventure. He is a notable figure, to be sure, and his legacy remains preserved in our historical DNA today, especially in the West, where sits, near Pinedale, Wyoming, a pristine glacial lake, which, like so many other counties and towns and canyons, still bears his name, Fremont Lake. The lake, of course, is much older than his namesake by millions of years. The lake is striking in its European aesthetic where most great American lakes are, we're used to expansive, round lakes. Fremont Lake near Pinedale is more like a Scottish lock. It's long and narrow. It winds through a shallow canyon of its own creation, surrounded by tree-lined rock foothills. If you go from Pinedale, it's only a short drive past the Museum of the Mountain Man on Fremont Lake Road. Fremont Ridge to the west gives uh, an unencumbered view of the entire lake and the mountain range beyond. And to the east, a small ski resort has now reopened, offering 300 inches of fresh snow every year. Pinedale is a hidden gem of a small mountain town. Anyone who loves to play, recreate outdoors in the Rocky Mountains, Pinedale is something for you year-round, as most Wyoming cities do. Pinedale hosts an annual craft brewing competition, dog sled races, outdoor music festivals, and the world championships of fat bike racing. There are accommodations year-round as well, from hotel chains to rustic cabins. And if this is starting to sound like a Chamber of Commerce commercial for Pinedale, Wyoming, that might be because I feel badly for what I'm about to tell you next, which I hope will not prejudice you against one of Wyoming's truest small-town gems. History piles atop itself. It may bury for, for a time what happened, but it never destroys it fully. And while the account, the actual telling of something, what actually happened, may eventually become all but impossible to discover through enough time, the truth is always available, I believe, for those who are able enough and lucky enough to discover and uncover it. The truth is still out there, or in the case of Lake Fremont, the truth is still down there. Deep down, nearly 600 feet below the surface, in fact, to this day, there lies at the bottom of Lake Fremont two steel barrels. They've been there for 40 years. Two barrels with three bodies inside. And they are still there today. Claire Martin used to manage a laundromat in Riverton. And she never liked her son-in-law. In fact, for most of her life, she hated him. Her daughter, Virginia, had met the man from Lander, and she'd brought two children of her own to the marriage to Gerald Uden. 11-year-old Richard and 10-year-old Reagan. 
But Claire Martin watched in almost knowing dismay as her daughter, Virginia Martin, had become Virginia Uden, and then only six weeks later filed for divorce. And when her daughter Virginia, not long after she disappeared, and when her car had been found with the blood around it, so much blood that she knew her daughter was dead, she knew, she knew she was gone. She knew it even though a woman in Illinois called her up to say that she'd seen her missing Virginia, and she knew that her daughter was no longer alive, even after the letter she received in the mail from the woman claiming to be her daughter. The letter basically said, Dear Mom, I'm fine. I'm alive and well and living in New Jersey. Just needed to get away for a while. But that letter was signed Virginia. And of course, Claire knew that her daughter always signed Jin. Her daughter was gone. There had been just too much blood at the car. And she knew also that her daughter had been murdered. She also knew who did it. But... She was still hopeful, even after a few months, that her grandsons were still alive. You see, they had gone missing, too, at the same time. The three of them had left nearby Pavilion on a hunting trip and never came back. That was September 12, 1980. And every two weeks since, the distraught grandmother had put aside part of her paycheck from the laundromat for a reward fund that she could only hope would lead to answers for the family. Someone knew something. And Claire knew who. She couldn't tell the newspaper reporters, and she didn't tell many outside of her close friends, but the police knew what she also knew about the blood type from the scene matching her daughter's. About her daughter's car, how it was found without a license plate in a remote area. Someone had tried to push it off a cliff, and the police and she knew about Gerald Uden. Gerald later told Claire that the three had simply never showed up at the pre-designated meeting place, that he'd been waiting, but his ex-wife and her children never arrived. This, of course, was a lie and not a very good one. Her ex-son-in-law had taken her daughter from her. Claire knew it in her bones. But there was still hope that he hadn't killed the boys. Why should he? Before they'd moved to Lander, Gerald Uden's family tree led back to Nebraska, and he still had plenty of people there. Perhaps he'd sent the boys to live there. Even if he'd wanted his ex-wife dead for some reason that not even Claire could surmise, there was no reason to kill the boys. Death is no more fair than life is, it turns out, and it's a sad thing, but it's true. Claire Martin, or Peg, as she was known to her friends in Riverton, passed away in 2013. She was 92. And had she lived until just the end of that year, she would have finally known exactly what happened to her daughter and her grandsons, just as the rest of us do now. But the true story of the man responsible for their deaths, the rest of his story, nobody could have predicted that. The burden of a child to carry a mother's secrets is something that some of you listening may be able to relate to but probably not like Todd Scott can. Todd was born and raised in Wyoming. At last word, he still lives in Casper. He grew up in Sheridan, where his mother, Alice, was a nurse at a local VA hospital. By 1974, when Todd was 13, he also had a two-year-old baby sister, and his mother had met a Vietnam vet named Ronald Holtz. Holtz had been a psychiatric patient, 
At the same hospital, suffering from lingering debilitations from the combat of war, as countless others had, it was not then strictly ethical for Alice to begin a relationship with a patient, or even a former patient, but that's what happened. And Ronald Holtz became a part of young Todd Scott's life. The couple married, which Todd had been through before. This was Alice's third husband prior to her turning 40. But this relationship seemed different right away. Both Alice and Ron drank heavily, and the strain of children in the house, especially Todd's baby sister, seemed too much for both to be able to handle. The couple had been married for no more than a few months when Todd Scott's world changed forever. The specific circumstances of this part of the story may never be known to all of us for sure. There are different versions of what Todd's mother Alice did to her new husband, but it's likely fair to say that Todd Scott's life has a line of demarcation. The time before, his mother told him that she'd shot a man in the head. And the time after. One could surmise, given his past psychiatric issues, Ronald Holtz may have been prone to erratic, even violent, behavior, especially when he drank. It may have really been, as Alice would later claim, that one night around Christmas, Ron had become threatening to Alice's two-year-old daughter, and she shot the man, her brand-new husband, in defense of her daughter. Or it may have been, as others believe, as the prosecution in her murder case would later claim, that Ron was no imminent threat to anyone as he slept in his bed on Christmas Eve, 1974, as Alice stood over him with a twenty-two rifle. That's a remarkable moment, a slice of time just like any other, but also so defining a few seconds for the rest of so many lives. Alice would have been standing over her latest husband and former patient, presumably contemplating her next simple action, whether to lower the barrel of the rifle or pull the trigger, and Alice chose the latter. Ron presumably died instantly, and the frail, small woman managed to remove his body from the bedroom. Alice emptied a large box full of Christmas decorations and placed Ron inside of it. In that moment, the crime was hers and hers alone. The burden of it she bore herself, and one other friend who she recruited to help get rid of the body. But it does not seem that Alice was capable of carrying such a burden alone. In a capping act of cowardice, she told no one further about what she had done, no one except her own children. The confession to Todd Scott came years later. Alice was working as a bartender in a small town outside of Laramie by then, and after her shift one day, Todd was giving his mother a ride home, and Todd says that's when she rather nonchalantly slipped into the conversation the fact that she'd shot Ron Holtz in the head in 1974 or 1975. It had been too long to specifically remember what month. The story continued. Ron's body, Alice said, was inside an old mine shaft on a ranch she once worked at while married to a different husband. And after a few questions, Todd slowly realized that he knew exactly where that mine shaft was on the Remount Ranch, made notable by the children's novel, My Friend Flicka. There's a mine shaft mentioned in that story as a place where animal carcasses are dumped, and it's a real mine shaft. This apparently is where Todd's mother had disposed of her third husband. Not long after Ron's murder, Alice was granted a divorce, as Ron could not be located for service of the divorce papers. 
You can't help but wonder about Alice's life in the years after that. But Alice was not done with marriage. It would be interesting to know how she met her fourth husband, who she married a couple of years later. I don't know that anyone knows the origin story of that unique relationship, Alice's fourth marriage. And the two wouldn't be staying in Wyoming for long. Gerald Uden and now Alice Uden both quickly moved to Missouri, where eventually both would work as long-haul truck drivers. And it was there in Missouri they stayed for more than 20 years following. They were not on the run. They were not hiding. And law enforcement from multiple jurisdictions in Wyoming never lost tabs on the Udens because they all but knew that both, both of them, had each killed their former spouses. They just couldn't yet prove it. In 1980, Gerald Uden had agreed to meet his ex-wife and her two sons, 10-year-old Reagan and 11-year-old Richard, in a remote area near his home in Pavilion, Wyoming. After driving for some time, Uden stopped the car and the boys excitedly got out. They were ready to go hunting. And they wanted to shoot a new rifle, a new twenty-two. You can imagine the boys excitedly arguing about who would get to shoot it first. Gerald offered to test fire the weapon before the boys tried it out. His ex-wife was turned just slightly away from Gerald, and that was the chance he used to shoot her in the head. Gerald immediately wheeled back toward the vehicle where the older of the two boys was standing and shot Richard behind the ear. Probably the only of the three victims who knew what was happening, 10-year-old Reagan, began to haphazardly attempt to get away, and in his haste to run, the boy quickly tripped and fell into a small ditch. And that's where Gerald shot him, too. The whole thing was over in about 10 seconds. And if you're wondering why, why Gerald Uden would shoot his ex-wife, let alone her two young sons, apparently on a whim, out of nowhere... We'll never know. It's safe to say we'll never know. It's not clear that Gerald ever confessed to any specific motive and likely never will now. But after killing the three, he put their bodies into two barrels, one for his ex-wife, Virginia, and the second for the boys. And he dumped the bodies in a remote mine shaft. The family vehicle would not be located for several months. Gerald had removed the license plate and tried to conceal the car near his home. But as time passed, Gerald did become anxious about the bodies being discovered. And so eventually, according to Gerald Uden, he retrieved the barrels and drove them a few hours from Fremont County to, coincidentally, Fremont Lake, where he says he dropped the barrels into the water as deep as 600 feet. It was soon after that that he met his new love, Alice, and the murderous couple moved to Missouri. But Alice, as you know by now, had her own secrets. They must have found occasion to talk about their respective murders, right? It's not known for sure that they ever confessed to one another about killing their respective former spouses. But it's hard to imagine they couldn't have known. And wouldn't that have been an interesting moment? Funny you mention that. I have a similar story type thing. Certainly Alice, at least, couldn't keep from unburdening herself to her own children And it turns out Alice had confided in more than one of her own kids. Another of her daughters was also told the family secret, also while they were drinking, that she'd shot Ron in the head. As dark secrets go, what's more deep than that one? 
And yet, neither of Alice's children, who'd been burdened with this confession, kept quiet. Todd, for one, told just about as many people as he could. He told friends. He told co-workers. He, yes, he told the police that his mother had shot her husband. And it took 40 years. But eventually, that mine on the ranch from the children's book was swarming with law enforcement. Ron's body was located down the mine, and in 2013, Alice was charged. After she was arrested and she was told about the charges, Alice Uden reportedly fell back against the wall where she stood and said, Oh my God, my children told you. Gerald Uden was arrested the same day. He pled guilty and confessed within a week. Alice did not. She claimed self-defense, or at least defense of her young daughter, and her case went to trial where her children testified against her. Alice Uden was convicted of murder and sentenced to life in August 2014, by which time Gerald Uden was already serving his sentence in Torrington. Alice Uden died on June 12, 2019. Gerald is still serving his sentence. Gerald Uden wrote a letter to his biographer in which he suddenly proclaims his innocence of the triple murder, some six years after his original confession. In the letter, he said, quote, I have decided to come clean and tell you that Virginia and the boys are not in Fremont Lake, and in fact, I don't know where they are. I did not ask Alice if she killed them or where they're buried. If anyone asks, she will deny it. And if she has any sense, she will claim I did, in fact, do what I said I did. She will hate me for trying to throw her under the bus, but now you are faced with a dilemma. Who to believe, therefore, creating... A reasonable doubt. Unquote. Authorities, of course, have searched Fremont Lake for those barrels many times without success. The climate and just the sheer depth of that water in the 10 mile long lake makes that task of trying to find those two barrels beyond their reach, literally. The complete truth of this bizarre and tragic Wyoming tale, though we have most of it, may never emerge from those dark depths and is a reminder of all the other secrets this fascinating state still holds. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dead and Gone in Wyoming. That was a listener request I've had several times, a fascinating, bizarre, and tragic story. I want to, as always, thank our Patreon supporters for your continued support of this podcast. You're keeping us going through continued challenging times. If you'd like to become a supporter, get early access to the episodes and other goodies as they arise. I love hearing from all of you, whether it be via email, wyomingpodcast at gmail.com, or on Twitter, at wyomingpodcast. We also have some other things in the works here for the show and online that we're looking forward to bringing you as we go forward as well. Thank you, as always, for subscribing, telling your friends. The response to the show continues to humble and amaze me. Thank you all for allowing me to tell you all these stories each month. That is all the time we have for this episode. For County10.com and all the great people there, I'm Scott Fuller, already looking forward to bringing you the next episode of Dead and Gone in Wyoming.
Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.